Welcome to Technology and the Mind, a podcast dedicated to exploring the intersection of psychoanalytic ideas and our experiences with consumer technology. Each episode, we will interview a seasoned psychoanalyst, philosopher, or technologist about different aspects of the conscious and unconscious effects of how we use technologies on our minds, relationships, and society. Please welcome your host, Dr. Nicole Zapian, a psychoanalytic psychotherapist, a psychoanalyst in training, and consultant in the San Francisco Bay Area. Welcome to Technology in the Mind, a podcast where we interview a seasoned psychoanalyst each month about contemporary psychoanalytic concepts applied to our experiences with consumer technology. Today, our guest is Dr. Catherine Malou. Dr. Malou is a psychoanalyst and a psychiatrist practicing in San Francisco, California, and she's a member of the San Francisco Center for Psychoanalysis. Dr. Malou has taught courses on the works of Freud and Bion, as well as courses on dreams, the mind of the therapist, and field theory. Dr. Malou has an interest in the arts and creativity and has written articles on film and opera from a psychoanalytic perspective. In addition, she specializes in working with pregnant and postpartum women and has written, taught, and lectured on the subject. Dr. Malou will discuss the idea of negative capability today, what it means, why psychoanalysts think it's an important capability to develop and maintain, and how we imagine that consumer technology might impact our capacities individually and collectively to maintain and foster this important capability. Welcome to the show. So negative capability was apparently first mentioned in a letter John Keats wrote. Later, this idea was taken up by Wilfred Bion, a psychoanalyst in the mid-20th century. Can you tell us a bit about the meaning of negative capability and in particular what it means for psychoanalysts? Yes, this idea comes from the British poet. In 1817, in a letter to his brother, he makes mention of the idea of negative capability, an idea he formulated in regards to his view of Shakespeare and what made him a, quote, man of achievement. I think that Keats is referring to a particular quality in Shakespeare that he felt contributed to his literary capabilities. I thought that I would share the quote. I mean negative capability, that is, when a man is capable of being in uncertainties, mysteries, doubts, without any irritable reaching after fact and reason. I would say person, by the way. He goes on to explicitly refer to the poet Coleridge, who is incapable of remaining content with half-knowledge. So Keats is interested in a particular intellectual stance that has to do with knowing and reaching for the facts, but also... I think, an emotional stance towards writing and creative work. And I say emotional, which is interesting. He is, I think, referring to feeling frustrated, impatient, eager to get somewhere, to get a particular outcome, having to know. And he thinks that's antithetical to literary creativity. And obviously, he's advocating for a different state. And I'd say it could involve intense emotion, like passion or excitement about discovery. Maybe it could involve a quieter state of being reflective, wondering, or being unsure or puzzled, which could be uncomfortable or unsettling. So how does Wilfred Bion make use of this? As Bion quotes from the letter, he particularly emphasizes the, quote, irritable reaching after fact and reason. What he is aiming for here in clinical work is to be open to what is not known, rather than trying to make sense of things too quickly, you know, to fit a preconceived idea or over-relying on theory to understand the problem someone is struggling with. Having a stance of negative capability allows for a new idea to emerge, something from the unconscious that's not yet known. 
and often considered idea of being without memory and desire as a way to approach psychoanalytic work. Each session is a new session with someone we know but don't know. Imagine meeting up with a friend as if it was for the first time. Beyond is very much interested in the use of intuition and not over-relying on ideas we've already formulated or what we knew yesterday or last week, so we can really get at what's happening in the moment between us. So it's not that we forget what we thought or understood or don't make connections to the past, but we have it more in the back of our mind so that we can learn something new. And we have to be willing to upend what we thought we knew. I think most importantly, it also means tolerating that we don't yet know enough and don't have a full understanding of a person and that it will take time to gain understanding. It does mean our patients also have to tolerate not knowing right away and not getting the answers, which may go against the grain of a culture that promises tools and more immediate answers to our problems. I feel free to someone that I don't know the meaning or have the answer yet. The process of self-knowledge is slow and painstaking and can't be otherwise, but it also brings deep rewards. So psychoanalysis with its slow and painstaking but personal and deep methods does sometimes go against the grain of culture. I find that too. And the culture promises tools and immediate answers, oftentimes in the form of apps or some sort of algorithm that's fueled by AI and technology solutions that purport to have, you know, everything that we might desire. I oftentimes have patients, first-time patients will come in and say, you know, so what can you do for me in 10 sessions? Or what's the end result here? What are you ultimately giving me for this process that we're going to go through? And what we do instead as psychoanalysts is we take a more slow and painstaking process for a variety of reasons. Humans aren't to be reduced to an algorithm because we have an unconscious. And one of the capacities that's required to unfold the self-knowledge, which is personal and complex and often beautiful, I think, is negative capability. We work really hard to develop the capability as psychoanalysts in ourselves because we don't yet offer, you know, any kind of structured approach to our patients. And our work helps to impart the same capacity to our patients in their lives. How would you say this particular capacity is imparted to our patients? How does that occur? Well, I really appreciate your description, Nicole, of the process that we're involved in. And negative capability is really crucial, I think. and. We impart this through the work itself, which promotes a kind of openness, and particularly an openness to ourselves. I would say that negative capabilities and openness to learning things about ourselves we didn't know, and an openness to experience our feelings. We come back to feelings. We come into therapy with a sense of needing help and not sure where the problem lies or originates. Freud's idea of free association is quite relevant here in developing negative capability. The idea of following our thoughts, even if they don't make sense, not censoring them and seeing where they go, gives us a chance to see then what we can learn from the thoughts, memories, and feelings that are emerging. And we encourage this kind of thinking to try to understand the unconscious and deepen self-understanding. So that is also a kind of negative capability encouraged through free association that's spontaneous and filled with uncertainty, as we don't know where these thoughts will lead us. It is a kind of freedom of thought, but it can be unsettling. Having this capacity means being unafraid of what will emerge, and with the support of the analyst, we can feel much more comfortable as we deal with our fears about knowing our own thoughts and feelings. This is a capacity that hopefully will be present after the work is done. I wonder if you could say a little bit about 
just to give the listeners who haven't maybe had any experience with psychoanalysis, what exactly this entails? I mean, I'm thinking about what it means to allow oneself to have thoughts that one has never allowed. Sometimes these can be really creative thoughts, really outlandish thoughts. And sometimes these thoughts can be really unsettling, as you mentioned, meaning dark thoughts or difficult thoughts, painful thoughts, and sometimes really exciting thoughts. Can you give us a little flavor of what the span or range of things might be that one might allow for? I think it does allow for a range of feelings that are we may not know in advance of what will come up. And um, I think it involves trust also, that we're building a trusting relationship. And in that relationship, all kinds of feelings come up, and those can be talked about and thought about in a way that isn't possible in other relationships. So I think that I have experienced so many different emotions in people that I'm working with and so many different aspects of their histories and their lives. And we grapple with what's hard about it and also what we can come to learn in a way that is also quite helpful, even if we go through a painful time, but we're going through it together. In thinking about this, there's this side of the analyst. And for me and people working in psychoanalysis, this is free-floating attention. Another idea of Freud's, which means not attaching to any one idea or piece of information, but observing what's coming to mind as we listen. And this allows our own unconscious to come forward in order to have contact with the unconscious of the other, which is really similar to Beyond's idea of being without memory and desire. That is, we listen without intent to find something in particular, but to see what occurs to us as we listen and seeing if there's a pattern that emerges. And this does sound like meditation in a way, where we kind of observe our thoughts, but we're also very interested in the thoughts themselves that are coming up and seeing what really strikes us as important. So it's meditation and yet still taking up whatever comes up as something to be considered. Whereas in meditation, my understanding is that people are choosing to or wishing to let go of all of the stream of of thoughts. Right. I think ultimately we'll land on something we want to take hold of. And the idea of negative capabilities that we are open to finding out what we should take hold of or what might seem important rather than grasping on the first thing or thinking, oh, that's the the right thing to think about, but just letting things evolve. And I'd say for me, this means listening with a receptivity to and a curiosity about what could be discovered, even or perhaps especially in hearing things that are familiar or seemingly already understood. And this means creating an atmosphere for a new realization to emerge. Someone tells the same story about their childhood or their past, and we need to be open to learning something new or hearing it from a new perspective. And that needs to come from me and my cultivating negative capability. In hearing a dream for the first time, we have to be open to not knowing what it means right away, unless, of course, we do. But even then, there are many other possible aspects of the dream to be explored. And we might find ourselves considering the dream for a second time and finding something in it that wasn't clear before or finding something new in its meaning, tapping into something different in the unconscious or someone who refers to a film, which can be considered a kind of dream. And I can't be too quick to assume I know the film that they're talking about, even if I've seen it. It may be a totally different experience for them, or what they see in it is completely different. 
And then the uniqueness of their experience is lost if we're talking about it as if we both know what we mean. Well, here's an example. I was with a patient who wanted to start where we left off last time in the previous session. And I was pulled for a moment, a reminder of what we spoke about, which I did recall more or less. But after a moment of reflection, I thought differently. As I wanted to be open and have negative capability, I said that we should see what might come to mind in the moment today. See what she's feeling now and see where that goes. I mean, I could weave in what we talked about last time, but let's see. And then I put aside the last session. And what emerged and what we came to talk about was her lack of self-confidence in work and as a mother and some childhood memories came up that neither of us knew we would talk about, which were quite emotional, but very helpful to think together about to begin to understand her self-doubt. I don't think we would have gotten there in any other way with so much spontaneous emotion, which is so important when working through past experiences. So I really feel like this is so much part of the everyday work. And as a psychoanalyst, I'm always working on achieving this. I think we all tend to the familiar and what we already know, and we want to have the answers in order to feel comfortable and secure. And we have to be comfortable not knowing or having only partial knowledge a lot of the time in this work. This is especially true in understanding the unconscious. The unconscious part of our minds is a vast landscape that tolerates contradictions and disregards logic and systematic thought and makes unexpected connections. And I think the Surrealists captured this so well. And I'm thinking in particular of the paintings of Salvador Dali, where familiar everyday things are made to feel and appear unfamiliar and unknown. This makes me think of how people often use their phones or even podcasts, actually, to fill up their time when there's a free moment when they don't know what to do or what to say to others. And during these moments, often people go toward what is familiar. So their Instagram feed or their news feeds or, you know, whatever. And they go towards what they already know and who they already talk to or read. I include myself in this. I do this too sometimes. This seems to promote the silos that we see politically or socially. There seems to be very little time we spend as a collective in the unfamiliar, engaging with something new or just doing nothing at all, waiting for something to arise. I heard a patient last week tell me, recall one of these moments, she called it a shower moment, meaning that it can be helpful to take a shower where there's no tack, so that we can let the mind drift and see what arises. I personally worry a lot that tech with its always-on, portable, and stimulating availability offers answers to all of our searches and all of our apparent inability to go without our phones, computers, and smart devices for very much time bodes poorly for our ongoing capacity to develop and maintain negative capability. Can you say a little bit about why you think this capability is so important? Yes, you're asking the question, is this idea useful in everyday life? And if we think it could be useful, in what way? I mean, it does seem important to be open to something new, including something new emerging in our own thoughts and ideas as we're trying to solve a problem or just reflecting. Can we keep ourselves open to ourselves and tolerate this freedom of thought similar to what I was describing in free association and in the process of psychoanalysis? And if we can, we may have a chance to develop ourselves in new and unexpected ways. I've been thinking that we often use travel as a means to encounter the new. And in so doing, we encounter ourselves in a new and different way if we are open to the experience. We could take a prearranged tour, which is informative and interesting, or follow the guidebook to make sure we saw all the sites. And we can also make our way on our own and see what we discover which is intimidating at times, especially if you don't know the language. 
but I have never found it to fail in finding something different or something that I hadn't expected. It means tolerating experiences that may not turn out so well, but then having others that are truly unique and live on in memory is special. Obviously, I'm advocating that negative capability is useful to us in our personal development and also in keeping life fresh and interesting. So it could lead to creativity in our everyday lives or in the overall trajectory of our lives. We may be more flexible and be able to approach our problems or challenges in more productive and unanticipated ways. Thinking more about creativity, as Keats was, negative capability is almost essential. In writing or other artistic endeavors, it means not knowing where you'll end up or where the process is going or how the characters will develop or how the story will end. The act of writing itself can engender new ideas, and I have found this in my own writing, having new thoughts and ideas as I am in the act of writing itself. And this seems crucial if something new is to emerge and allowing one's imagination to really work. And it is a kind of giving over to the process. There are many inhibitions to the creative process that come from ourselves, our own anxieties and personalities or backgrounds. And this is something that psychoanalysis also addresses, as all of this can add up to a lack of negative capability and block the creative process. Do you have any examples you can share that suggest that consumer technology use impacts our capacity for developing and maintaining negative capability, either in the positive or in the negative? Well, you know, I should say first that I'm not anti-technology, but I'm not necessarily engaged in all that's possible to make use of. And some of that might be generational, but also I've been really thoughtful about my relationship to technology and media, which started with my not owning a television for quite a while. We're inducted into our culture and society from an early age, and we don't necessarily question it. And in fact, there's a limit to how much we can go beyond it or escape from it. Our minds are shape our culture and all that technology offers. So I try to be thoughtful about what I accept and how I make use of it. I enjoy photos on my phone, for instance, but I still have a film camera, which offers a different experience along the lines we're talking about. I won't know what the photo will look like until it's developed. And that's a very different experience and does involve negative capability. It's a metaphor as well, as we don't always know how things will turn out, even if we have it all lined up in our lives. In terms of photography, is it better? Not necessarily, as any photo can still be a creative engagement, but it is different. On the other hand, you could say that even taking a photo limits negative capability, as we're thinking of the photo we're taking and not the experience. Or in some cases, where we will post the photo and who will see it on social media, rather than being in the moment of whatever the experience is. Photo puts something in a frame, and our experience is much more than that. I think that social media and what technology has allowed for can get in the way. There's just the medium of the phone or computer and how that draws us in in a different way than a book or film. These are much more compelling and addictive mediums for entertainment and information in a way that feels much different from reading a book or magazine or listening to music on a stereo rather than a YouTube video. And television may be in this category as well. So the medium itself keeps us enthralled, and I'm sure we've all had the experience of being away from our phones or computers and feeling this urge to get back to it, or even the pull of engaging with it, even if we don't need to. So looking at a device seems to pull us in a way that precludes eye contact and engagement with others. What might come up in a conversation if there's a lull, or we don't know what we want to talk about next and just let that happen? 
I think of this often in my work with mothers and infants and how being preoccupied on the phone or screen precludes this kind of mutual gaze and attentiveness that's important for both of them. Are we staying in contact with the people we're with when we are actually with them, which could allow for a negative capability in our relationships? Maybe we'll have an unexpected conversation or interaction. I mean, there's so much to consume in terms of information and so many, many sources for information. We can look things up, look up anything at any time, and have the information at our fingertips, literally. Sometimes we need the information in that moment. Sometimes it's fun to do and can enhance a conversation or bring something to light with more food for thought. I certainly have encountered new music, say, or interesting interviews while looking something up on YouTube, so it opens up the possibility of discovering something. But then what about algorithms based on an assessment of our preferences? that could potentially limit us, although it gives the appearance of offering us more. I love stack picks at a bookstore because I discover books I wouldn't have considered from someone else's perspective. And as you were referencing earlier, we're so enticed to move from one program to another, binge watching. Again, that's quite enthralling, but does it leave us time to reflect on or absorb what we've actually seen? I mean, there's this pull to find out what happens next, but then I might wonder, is this really an experience or is it an attempt to just distract ourselves from ourselves or our thoughts, a way to cancel out our own thinking, like binging on food can do. And the idea of endless scrolling has a similar feel. It promotes, I think, a mindlessness rather than real engagement. So there's another aspect to being able to access so much information. You could argue what's wrong with looking things up and getting at the answer. Technically, nothing is wrong with that. If we can, why shouldn't we? I want to offer another perspective coming from this idea of negative capability, another possibility for the kinds of experiences we can have. I think these uses of technology and media preclude the experience of not knowing something and having to tolerate not knowing. Then we have to search our memories and perhaps think of an answer, and in so doing, come across other thoughts or ideas or associations that might also be interesting. We might think of a different film or another director and be off on another conversation. Keats' quote is so apt in the sense of not reaching after facts and being in a state of uncertainty. I think there's value in getting lost in one's thoughts and mental wanderings, and we can't develop that if we're always listening to something or looking things up. With GPS, we have no chance to get lost, and we're made to feel that we have to know where we are and not, quote, waste time in traffic. And I think that the ability to look things up all the time is another GPS, so we can locate ourselves and our thoughts and not feel at sea. It isn't that there weren't ways to look things up in a dictionary or encyclopedia, and those could be readily at hand, but not in the same ways our phones are always with us wherever we go. And when these are not at hand, we'd have to be confused about something and try to figure it out or just wait to get the answer. There's space for just wandering about in one's mind. I'm thinking about this business of wandering in one's mind. And so often it's not only the different paths that can come out, but sometimes really important associations lead to deep personal transformation. And if we just go with kind of algorithmic linear searching, we not only bypass those wanderings, but I think sometimes we don't get to the deeper associations that might have real meaning and uh, lasting transformational experiential kinds of qualities. What do you think about that? I think you're referring to having a more emotional experience and as we come up with different ideas we hadn't expected to have. And 
when you say transformational, I think it means coming to a different perspective on an aspect of one's experience and realizing something you hadn't realized before. And that can create change. And that's something we do in psychoanalysis and psychotherapy. And it could happen in our everyday lives, in a conversation with someone. If we're really listening to each other and kind of continuing a conversation along lines that we hadn't thought we would, and we'll discover something new. Might change the relationship. What about this issue of the embodied sense of things that maybe gets disrupted with technology? I wonder if you could say a few words about that and negative capability. Well, as you put it this way, the embodied sense of things, I think being in the experience of our computer or our phones does take us out of our bodies, potentially. And we lose track of our physical being and maybe even forget it and forget what it needs and how we need all of our senses for our experiences and senses that are engaged by ambient sound or light, light that changes how things look different at different times of day, walking around and feeling the air on one's body. And those are, I think, really important and experiences to have. And another aspect I've seen in my work and in the general culture is how anxiety about what's happening in our bodies is dealt with through technology. Of course, bodily symptoms can cause anxiety to different degrees. There are endless searches on the internet one can do for any physical symptom imaginable. And I think this is an attempt to get control of something we actually don't have much control over, which is why these searches are never ending. And they can also generate their own anxiety. And in my work with pregnant women, I see how ultrasounds in pregnancy can be similar. I don't mean to diminish their value and the joy they bring or the very useful and timely information we wouldn't have had had previously crucial to a good pregnancy outcome. It gives the illusion that we know all we need to know and promotes the illusion that technology itself is enough to prevent something going wrong. And there are real limits to what technology can do. Having a helpless feeling, not having control is potentially disturbing. That is one of the things we confront in psychoanalysis, a reality of living and being in the world and being in our bodies. It's interesting that you've lectured on Freud and beyond and not knowing and negative capability and thinking about pregnancy, pregnancy loss, postpartum depression, but even the joys of pregnancy. There is so much unknown in being pregnant and having a baby. You don't know the character of your child. You don't know what they will be like until you meet them. And even once you do meet them, one could say that parenthood doesn't really necessarily put one squarely in the seat of knowing. It's a lot of unknowns all along the developmental trajectory. So I so appreciate that link between those two bodies of work that you bring to psychoanalysis. Well, I'm also aware that there are a lot of apps that can engage women who are pregnant and in the early days of infancy and how to deal with different things that come up with the infant or what you can know about what's happening inside of you as you're pregnant and tracking it very carefully along the course of pregnancy, which of course is reassuring and interesting. And yet we also need to be aware that there's still something unknown that's happening that we can't fully capture. And there's a lot of mystery involved which um, is an important feeling, I think. 
So I like to play devil's advocate with uh, technology and psychoanalytic concepts. And so I'm just going to play devil's advocate a little bit here. What if we were to take the stance that you can do everything online or with tech-mediated spaces that you can in the real world? So there's this analog version of going to the theater or taking in art or being an embodied conversation that's associative and alive and so on. And you can do all of that online through technology. You can interact with other people. You can view the theater. You can do all of the things that you can do in the analog world. You can also be bored. You can be frustrated. You can subject yourself to whatever's presented in tech-mediated realms, all of the emotional experiences too. It just happens a little faster and you have the illusion of control. So we can swipe or click or leave just like we can get up from a performance during intermission or ask an usher to move us. Could it be perhaps that tech-mediated spaces are perhaps more similar to analog experiences and that in fact there really is no difference and we can develop negative capability in these scenarios just as well? I do think there's a difference. I think being with other people in a theater and getting a sense of how they're reacting to something, it's a very, I think, rich shared experience. And or being in a museum and maybe overhearing how someone else is thinking about the work and just having the very physical experience of looking at the painting or being in a theater where you're actually watching the actors on the stage or the musicians. I think these experiences are have different aspects to them that uh, are interesting. And maybe we don't even register it at the time. That, that aspect of being in a space with other people, but that actually does bring something to our experience. As you're talking, I'm thinking about the possibilities that exist in tech where sometimes there's, you know, crowdsourcing or chat box or these kinds of ways in which the rest of the viewers are brought into one's experience, but it's still at a distance and usually you can turn off those functions. So it's not the same as being in an audience, I think. There's also not the possibility that someone could touch you, you know, physically which I think is very different. Not that that happens every time that one goes to the theater, but there's the possibility. We have to encounter other people and maybe engage with them or deal with them in some way that we wouldn't. And I do think the physical realm is so important. You also said something about whether we could still develop negative capability in these spaces. And reading other people's comments can be stimulating. You might have an idea you didn't have and that could be something that engenders new thoughts or a different conversation. I mean, there just isn't, though, the possibility of a back and forth with the one person, but you're having a kind of back and forth with a whole group. So it doesn't preclude the idea of something new emerging. It's just a very different way of doing it. And you might get caught up in so many comments and responses that it blocks out your own thinking. I often like to think of technology as a fast medium compared to a, the slow medium of the human mind where we might dawdle or space out or whatever in between associations and thoughts and feelings. I wonder if the main difference is really just in the speed. Machine time is fundamentally different than emotional time. And that pacing doesn't allow for the gaps in which negative capability might really develop. I think that's right. I think we benefit from that kind of open time. We really have to rest our minds and process our experiences. And I don't mean rest our minds by binge watching, but to just be walking without listening or being at home without always consuming more information. 
and allow our minds to wander because we do have to process our experiences. And this is something beyond thought about dreaming, that it was crucial for our minds to process our experiences and to actually render some experiences unconscious so we're not overwhelmed. And I think that kind of daydreaming is really important for the same reason. It's also so satisfying sometimes. Do you have any words of advice on how we might relate to our consumer technologies to preserve or improve the quality of our relationships and psyches, including negative capability? Advocating for encountering ourselves and the world around us in an unmediated way and an uncurated way, having time to let our thoughts go and not looking for the answers right away, being in the presence of another person and seeing what develops. And thinking about this piece, I was thinking about John Cage's work. Four minutes, 33 seconds, which was first performed at Woodstock in 1952. John Cage was an avant-garde composer of the 20th century and was controversial and revolutionary. The piece is basically silence. And listeners at the time heard the ambient sounds of nature around them. I came across this piece at an exhibit at the New York Museum of Modern Art. In thinking of this piece in terms of negative capability, I indeed looked it up. And I learned quite a few things, found an interesting article. I was also moved to think about the effect of listening to that piece. Different aspects of negative capability then came to mind. It's still performed and you can find it on YouTube, but that doesn't capture the experience. Sometimes you actually have to be there. And that is the point I want to make. The actual sensory or sensual experience is important and also a potential shared experience then we can actually reflect on the experience within ourselves and share it with someone, making it part of the relationship and our history of shared experiences. The other thing about attending the performance is having to be open to whatever the experience is. Now we know what to expect, but if it were the first time, what would it be like? Or we can hear the same piece of music performed, but another conductor or symphony will do it differently. We think we know what we expect. You would have to go to the performance and be open to whatever the experience is and what it brings up. Frustration, boredom, wondering what it means, a different kind of listening. For instance, I found myself thinking that it might bring up the idea of the relationship of music to the sounds of nature. Then there's wondering what he meant in creating this work. Do we have to know? Not knowing the meaning is not a bad thing. With artworks like this, we find ourselves reaching for the meaning. It makes me think again of John Keats, irritable reaching after fact and reason. In not knowing, we can think for ourselves about why he might have created such a work. In fact, I read something that John Cage subsequently said about it, and I wasn't sure that was such a good thing. And I thought there are other meanings. So in the spirit of negative capability, I'm not going to tell you what he said, but encourage your own reflections. So we've been speaking with Dr. Catherine Malou. You can find her at Catherine Malou. It's spelled Catherine with a C, Malou, M-A-L-L-O-U-H dot com. Thank you so much for sharing your ideas with us. It's been a pleasure to talk with you. And thank you all for listening to Technology in the Mind. Next month, we'll be speaking with Dr. Stephen Luger about the Kleinian notion of the depressive position and how technological optimization mindsets may problematize our ability to experience this important state. Please join us at Technology in the Mind on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of Technology in the Mind. If you would like to learn more about psychoanalysis and technology, please visit the Center for Psychoanalysis and Technology at www.centerforpsychoanalysisandtech.com. For additional episodes of Technology in the Mind, you can find us wherever you find your podcasts.